Welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about career, community, and creativity. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. We'll have part two of our conversation with artist, writer, musician, and Dante scholar Adoyo about how you can find pretty much everything in Dante's writing a little later in the hour. First, I'm going to talk about this book. I had kind of forgotten it existed. I was in the middle of reading another book, and then I rediscovered this one, and I really wanted to do a review about it. A lot of times, people on their own for the first time feel a certain amount of existential dread about the demands of adulting. There's a lot of stuff that when we're kids, we believe adults sort of inherently know how to do. And as a parent, if you've really been letting your kids discover stuff, if you've really been letting them be appropriately independent at the appropriate time, then this stuff isn't really that much of a mystery. But a lot of parents don't do that. And a lot of kids' time is taken up in other activities and they end up without the chance to have this kind of adult-level independence. Fine. I remember going through this same trajectory, but when I was doing it, we didn't have the word adulting, which plenty of people dismiss as a stupid concept. But since I remember the distress it caused me, I'm really happy that there's a word for this. I remember being almost completely undone by having to figure out insurance, car insurance, renter's insurance, health insurance, life insurance. It was just, it was too much. Trip insurance, what, what, what does, why should I have to learn all of this stuff? Why should I have to pay so many different places? And this was back in the days of checks too. So I was having to scramble to figure that out. So I, I think that it is reasonable to listen to young people and say, yeah, you have these various skills that are reasonable to know how to do as an adult. So when I had my kids, I definitely talked to them about what insurance means. I actually, when they were in middle school and then throughout high school, they would have times where they were in charge of the family's bills. So they had access to the family bank account and to all the electronic bill payments. And I would sit shotgun while they figured out how you split up month by month what you're going to need to pay on various things. Then there's survival. The ability to, you know, go out into the wild and be okay. There's survival in the sense of just, again, adulting, feeding yourself. And a lot of kids end up knowing how to do some of these things by participating in stuff like scouting, which have survival skills behind them. Then there's thriving and competence. And those are cognition-based skills. Those are the kinds of things that self-esteem is actually built from, not from people telling you you're great, but knowing that you have a certain command of the basics, a certain command of ways to move easily through life and not have to constantly struggle with your ignorance on just kind of learnable things, I guess. Things, when you have a gap, you fill it. When you find it, you fill it. So here is the perfect book for filling any gaps. This book is called Show Me How, 500 Things You Should Know, Instructions for Life from the Everyday to the Exotic. And it is written by 
Derek Fagerstrom, Lauren Smith, and the Show Me team. And I don't really know what the Show Me team is, except I assume they are graphic designers. This book is very hilarious. It's a bit cheeky, but it's also written out like, like almost like international signs. And it's almost a combination of international highway signs plus instructables plus the card on the back of the airplane seat that tells you what to do in the case of emergency <laughs> plus maybe a Heimlich maneuver how-to sign. That's kind of the vibe that it's got. It covers crafts like how to silk screen. It's got how to build a foxhole radio. So science projects, how to, how to run a clock from a potato, how to power a spinning machine so you can make like a little battery operated motor, and then food prep. And one of the things I've always loved about this is I've been able to cook all along. That was one of the skills my mother thought was necessary for young women to know. And then I'm of an age where we had home economics in school. But that doesn't mean I know how to open up a pomegranate or that I know how to dice a mango or open up a pineapple or a coconut the best way. Now, I can look on YouTube. All of this stuff is available on YouTube. But honestly, once you sit through someone talking about the time they got a coconut at the market, once you sit through four ads going into it, plus that they're going to just stop right now and shill for, you know, coconuts are us. This book is a lot more useful because you can flip it open, look at it and shut it. And it also does all sorts of hilarious cross references. So in the part about the easiest way to pit an avocado, they also refer you to page 262 where you can learn how to grow an avocado tree. Little facts like how long food keeps. Fish and meats are two days. Vegetables and dairy are more like five. Preserved meats and root vegetables and cheese are more like 14. That's just nice to know that you have a place where you can look that up super quickly. Also, and I've heard this disputed recently, I probably have to check it out a little more before I object to it, but I've been seeing all this sort of debunking that anyone is a visual learner. I have always felt more comfortable learning visually. And not only do I feel more comfortable learning visually, I not only write notes in words, I frequently will write notes in pictograms. And anytime I have to do heavy duty memorization, I always make a memory palace and I always make it with pictograms. So I'm really curious why someone would start arguing with me about being visually attuned. And I suspect it's for the clicks. If you feel like you really do learn things easily from visuals, then this is a terrific book. The other thing I love about it is if you have a language difficulty, so if you have a reading difficulty, but if you have a language difficulty, or if you are giving this to a family and they have a wide variety of ages, because this is all in pictograms, it makes it way more accessible. That said, it's not necessarily 
really appropriate for kids in the sense that it's got things like how to make cocktails. But I think the thing is, it's actually, it's not, I wouldn't have any objection to my middle schoolers learning how a martini is made because I wouldn't expect them to have access to the stuff that goes in a martini. It's not a terrible thing to know. It is kind of neat that they have some wide cultural things. So how to make tea for the Queen of England, how to make Russian tea in a samovar, how to prepare Tibetan yak butter tea, and how to serve Thai iced tea, and how to pull a perfect espresso, or, I mean, mystery of all mysteries, how to use a French press. These are skills. These are decent skills to know. I think the criticism I would have of this book is they're not always great about like even just with that when I was talking about Russian tea and Tibetan, they don't, it's only for how to. There's no discussing in it about whether it's something you should do, whether it is appropriation or not. And while they have a section on hair preparation, which is great, it doesn't cover the different kinds of hair. So it really sort of centralizes white hair and white hairstyles. And even the cornrow, it does have a, it does have a, drawing of a black woman getting her dreads redone but the woman getting cornrows is a white woman so uh, there's some there's some stuff there but this is also a maybe a 12 year old book I hope that in this day and age if it was going to be redone there'd be a little more effort made in making it apply to way more people why not it's all pictograms but here are some things I love there's a whole thing on men's dressing what kinds of suit patterns are there? Most boys don't learn anything about the requirements of a good suit. A parent goes to men's warehouse, maybe finds the one, buys it, tells them to go use this for their next interview, or maybe they have to go buy their own. Maybe they rent one for, or somebody rents it for them for a wedding. But the idea of being knowledgeable about what goes into the parts of a suit, knowing that makes you able to navigate some of those things about looking not just presentable, but looking fine. That would be nice to be able to navigate with ease. And it's kind of a low stakes way to do it in this book that has all these other really interesting survival and adulting skills to include how our formal shoes shined. What's the best way to look good in a suit? Where should your tie go? I mean, we just came off of years with a president who didn't know how long a tie should be. How long should the cuffs be? What looks right? People want to show up to things looking presentable. And you have to know what looking presentable means. So as I mentioned, there's a thing about women's hair. So if you are like me and always have to look up once again how to make a French braid, this can be incredibly helpful for that. Makeup, how to just put on basic makeup. If that's something that you did not cover as a younger person, yes, you can sit through millions of YouTubes and all of them are trying to sell you products. Or you can spend five minutes with this and be like, oh, that's how they get the smoky eye got it. And then you can do it. There's also a section on different kinds of clothing for women. What kinds of skirt shapes and dress shapes are there? This is incredibly helpful if you are going to be going to some kind of event 
and you know what kind of shape you look good in, but you don't know what it's called. Without that language, you're going to be stuck for hours trolling through various websites, knowing that this is where what an empire waist looks like, what the cut looks like, and being like, yes, that's the one that looks good at, on me, or the princess seams. This is a huge help. And it's a, and it's that to me, I would call that not a survival skill, but I would call it a thriving incompetence skill. And it might even put it under adulting. And how nice to be able to offload this onto a book instead of having to know it on the tips of your fingers all the time. How to remove stains from clothing, how to iron clothing, how to take care of sweaters. What are the different kinds of partner dances? That's nice to know before you have to do a wedding or even attend one. And then there's things like how to fold a fitted sheet. This is a skill that far too few adults have mastered. It is not only possible, it is 100% easy to do, but it has a trick to it. And the other one, and actually I hope someday they do an update of this because they don't have my favorite duvet cover trick. That one is on YouTube. If you look up something like duvet cover tri trick or comforter cover trick, you will find that there is a way to put down the duvet cover inside out on the bed, lay the duvet on top of it, roll the whole thing up like a rug, flip it, and I know this isn't making much sense, you would have to see it visually, and then shake it and the duvet cover is on. And for any of us who have spent time, and anybody that's got a duvet has spent time inside the duvet cover, wearing it, trying to get the corners right, frustrated, these kinds of things are just, they make your life so much easier. They're just a competence thing. There's a section on how to grow plants. There's a section on how to give your dog a pill, how to brush your dog's teeth, how to diaper a baby if all you have is cloth, how to burp a baby. There's a whole section on first aid, how to treat a burn safely, how to stop a nosebleed, how to get a bee sting out and how to treat it, ways to get splinters out, how to treat, how to remove something from your eye. Twice in my life, I have had foreign objects caught in my eye. Once was a microscopic piece of rusty metal. Both times were at the beach. Something just flew in my eye in the dust. And the second time was a microscopic piece of glass. They were agonizing and I could have used a little bit of relief knowing what to do and having a book that has that in it, one book and knowing where it is makes it just awesome for reference. Then there's this survival section that, I don't know, it appeals to me on so many levels. I, I don't know what it is about this that I just love. And I love that they're all kept together, right? Competence, adulting, thriving, being able to know what the parts of a suit are and how how to tie the tie and how long it should be compared with how to actually swim what are the major strokes how do you do them what's the form for them how to fold your clothes for travel for both men and women so that you can flap them out so that they take up the least amount of space and so that you can flap them out and wear them right away how to make yourself comfortable on an airplane, how to little exercises you can do, ways to combat jet lag, 
and how to choose the very best airplane seat. These are like on beyond normal adulting skills necessarily. If you knew them, you'd know them, but if you don't know them, here it is, offloaded. There's a wonderful section on camping. I don't love camping, but I do love some of the parts of camping. So how to make a grilled cheese on a stick and the ever popular how to open wine without a cork screw. That's fantastically helpful. How to estimate how much daylight remains. How to set up a little shade shelter or dig a snow cave. And then it like moves landscape to landscape. So there's also, oh, there's how to get water in the desert. These are things that like, again, I don't expect to keep them in my head, but I'm awfully glad to know that I can grab this book and look it up if I want to. It's, I don't know. It's the kind of stuff I really like to have in my brain. It's not trivia exactly though. Like it's not trivial, but it is trivia. And I don't know, it just makes me feel a little bit more like I've gotten something out of other people's experiences. But they go sort of from environment to environment. So there's a section on how to survive in the cold. There's a section on how to survive in the desert. There's a whole section on how to survive in the jungle, how to treat a snake bite, how to keep mosquitoes away, how to navigate a jungle, and how to evade a panther attack. I just don't even know, like... That's where this book gets cheeky to me, which I just love. Like, oh, don't play dead. You could end up that way. I mean, all right, how to wrestle an alligator. It's, yeah, it's just, it's a truly entertaining book. How to light a fire with a soda can. I've done that. I've had to do it, and I was super glad I knew how to. How to get out of quicksand. This one just makes me laugh because I love the meme that goes around every once in a while that says, based on what I was taught as a child, I thought that quicksand would be a much bigger problem as an adult than it ever has been. Well, it turns out one of the reasons it's not a big deal is because quicksand is really sandy, saturated mud. You can float. So that's what you do. If you know, don't flail. Drop heavy items as quick as you can. Try to get a walking stick and put it underneath your back if you can or underneath your hips to hold you up. And then you're really just trying to float and sort of gently scoot yourself out. Who knew? There's a thing about signaling an airplane. I just read about this because I just read about someone who was rescued from a very tiny island this way. He was waving both arms and the low flying plane knew that he needed help because he was waving both arms. And I thought, is that a thing? Apparently it is, it's in this book. That if you wave both arms, you say, yes, I need help. But if you only wave one arm, it means no, I don't need help. And my immediate thought on this is, what if you only have one arm? How on earth would you get past that? You can't hold a stick in your other I don't know I don't know how they think you would ever indicate you needed help also what if you've injured one of your arms that just seems like a very dicey rescue thing I mean how heartbreaking would it be to see people flying by that all report back oh yeah there's somebody down there but they're fine I don't know seems like a seems like a problem they also go into how to play basic music again it's cheeky how to play chopsticks 
how to lay down 12 bar blues, how to read music, and then how to rock out on the musical saw. I just, I guess part of the reason I love this book so much is that I really like the sensibility of the people who did it. So then the last part of it has these skills that maybe would impress others for fun. How to do little magic tricks, how to trick radar with a fake UFO, how to make crop circles in somebody's field, but also how to do things like shadow puppets. If you're ever dragged into last minute babysitting, this is not a bad skill to have. I guess, in fact, one of the reasons I think I like it so much and it tickles me so much is these are all the kind of things I feel like your aunts and uncles should know. And I have been an aunt since I was 10 years old and always wanted to be, and, and I think generally was, but it was really like a goal of mine is to be the kind of aunt who can jump in at the last minute and then do a whole shadow puppet show because I know how they're done. It's a really satisfying kind of thing to know how to do. There's a section on how to do Foley sound effects. So... If you were doing a podcast like this and you were doing a fictional one, rain is made with rice on a sheet of metal. Flapping empty gloves gets you a flying bird. Stabbing a watermelon is a stabbing. <laughs> I'm just, um, I'm really glad I know that. That's just kind of made my life better. How to juggle, how to breathe fire, how to be a human cannonball. How to learn to ride a unicycle. And then, as if all that weren't helpful enough, and believe me, all of this is extremely helpful, in order that people can use this book regardless of their ability to read and write English or their reading ability if they're children, the last several pages, there's a great index, but there are several pages of icon maps. So this is the icon that means shirt. This is the icon that means wire nuts because they tell you how you can make your own lamp out of anything. Making a lamp is unbelievably easy and simple, but almost nobody does it because it feels like since it has to do with electricity, it must be a rarefied skill. Very easy. Anyway, this beautifully laid out in sort of a chromatological order what from green into blue into red into pink into yellow of all the different kinds of tools that are referenced in this absolutely beautiful book. I know that I've had it in my life for several years. I have tons of post-its hanging out of it for various reasons. I have found it to be the kind of thing that I'll tell you one place I've, I've often done looking up in this book is when there's been a need for something and the electricity was out and I couldn't get the internet. You know, where else are you going to learn how to bottle feed a lamb and milk a goat and also create a Japanese Zen garden in one book? Can recommend, suggest that everybody have it on a shelf. Show me how, if for no other reason than it's just a delight to read. And maybe you too will end up making yourself a lattice top pie, a Tom Collins, knowing how to serve and pair Pinot Grigio with different kinds of meals, and ultimately mix yourself a sangria. Oh, 
Oh, and open the champagne bottle with a sword. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about career, community, and creativity. Next up, part two of our conversation with Adoyo, delving into the amazing poetry of Dante. If you can think of it, Dante probably already wrote about it 800 years ago. to tell you but may I please share this passage with you really quickly yes please no to hear. lead the way it's just another example of how Dante does talk about everything right? <laughs> 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 and this is in in Paradiso it's in the sphere of Venus Venus as we know is the goddess of love you know of carnal love and in Inferno and Purgatorio it's carnal love thought of in terms of lust right mm. it's like the carnal pleasure for its own sake but in paradiso when he does meet the souls in the sphere of venus the the semiotics is still the same the idea is that we're dealing with the goddess of love and yet it's framed more in terms of the generative function of sexual congress which is birth or dynastic mm. uh connection right okay so, so this is the end of, of that section. He, we're coming to the end of um, the sphere of Venus and he's been meeting all these, these blessed souls. And Charles Martel, who's a really important um, member of the Carolingian dynasty, is the one who's been speaking to him. And because, and here you have, he, the reason why it matters that it's called Charles Martel is because, because he is part of the Carolingian dynasty, right? So this is a dynastic like a a member of 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 an important dynastic chain who is talking about dynasty, but also talking about the way human beings go wrong. Okay, so this is a real-life character. Was this someone that Dante knew, or is this a different time period? No, it's not someone that he knew personally. Okay. uh, But it was someone who was well-known in Dante's time. Got it. Right? Yep. But no, Dante didn't, didn't know of him. And so Charles Martel ends this, this canto, this is right before they leave the sphere of Venus. He says, so nature once begotten would always follow a course like that of its begetters if divine providence did not intervene. Meaning things born of nature would always resemble whatever bore them, okay. right? So yeah. child would always resemble parent. Right. Unless, unless divine providence intervenes, right? So like a clone, except that, Things exactly. Are, things are set up so that there will be changes. Exactly. Mm. So, 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 like begets like begets like begets like unless divine providence intervenes. Mm. So, when you see difference, it's because divine providence has intervened. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. And then he continues. Now, what was behind you is before you. So this this doubt that you had, now you understand it clearly. But that you may know how much it is that you please me. I want you to wear this corollary as your cloak. So now okay. that you understand how things are begotten, pay attention to this. Yeah. Always, if nature meets a fate unsuited to it, like any kind of seed out of its native soil, it comes to a bad end. Mm. And if the world below paid more attention to the foundation nature lays and built on that, it would be peopled well. Meaning, if something comes into the world, 
but then it's exposed to uh, an unfriendly environment, mm. it can't thrive, right? Yeah. So if people paid attention to, say, an individual's natural inclination and nurtured that, then we would have much more healthy people in the world. The community would be much healthier. I feel like right? I, I feel like I have recently read articles in far less beautiful language and psychology today mm-hmm. that were yeah. that same conclusion. Like that's just like a much more beautiful way to say that. It, it is. It's fantastic. And here's the last quatrain, the way he closes it out. But no, you force into religion one born to wear the sword and make a king of one more fit for sermons mm. so that your path departs from the true way. So he's saying what human beings do is that despite, like someone might actually have a vocation for the monastery, right? Or for religious life. But because of the way society is set up, they, they turn him into a soldier instead. Like he might be a second son and right. he wants to go into the monastery. Right. But that's not his role. As a second son, he's supposed to go out and fight. Uh, whereas the third son is the one who goes into the monastery. And the first son is the one who gets all the inheritance. Yeah. And then you make a king of one fit for sermons. So maybe it was the elder son who instead maybe wanted to go into the priesthood, but instead he's forced to be a king. And for that reason, humanity essentially corrupts what nature has laid out for it. Mm. So this, I love this passage because it really speaks to what we were saying about, you know, parents paying attention to their children's natural talents and nurturing that and letting them thrive in, in, you know, whether it's been, been skill, craft, or, or athletics, because that's what they have a natural proclivity for. And so Dante is essentially, or has Charles Martel essentially say that where society goes wrong, where people become unhappy mm. and, and atrophy in the way you were saying earlier, is when society ignores that, when parents or, or caregivers or what have you ignore that and instead force people into roles that they're not, that they're ill-suited for. And that's so interesting coming this beautiful full circle to what you were saying about community being mm-hmm. from the one side of the odometer, the mm-hmm. micro, the house, and the other side of the odometer, the macro, all of society and everything mm-hmm. going in between. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Mm. Um, so he really does talk about everything, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what led what led you to him? Besides the fact that everything's in the book. Uh, <laughs> oh, see, I didn't know that everything was in the book when I when I I stumbled upon Dante quite by accident, actually, and it happened when I. Um, Let's see. Okay, the 10 second version of the steps that led me there was someone who was very close to me passed away while mm-hmm. I was at college at UC Davis, which is where I transferred to. And it's, I think, a combination of different things meant that I wasn't grieving properly. I couldn't, I didn't know how to. Mm-hmm. And the way it ended up manifesting is that I gradually lost the ability to read. Like I became illiterate. And I don't just mean hypothetically or I, I, words were gibberish to me. Mm. I would look at the street sign where I lived and it didn't signify in any way. And this was my second year of my program. And I just thought, okay, I'm toast because 
um, obviously you can't continue college when you when you're illiterate. You can't. And and I didn't know that it would be it, it would resolve itself. I didn't I didn't understand what was happening. I just knew that I could no longer read. It happened very gradually, very slowly, hmm. to the point where one day I realized, wow, I can't make heads or tails of what's written on a page, let alone on a you know in a book. So so the recovery was was slow in returning. I had the incredible good fortune of having an advisor, the very same advisor who let me change majors into music. Mm. When he heard my story, he's like, what is this geology student out of the blue wanting to me <laughs> to do music? And I was like, okay, well, welcome aboard. <laughs> um, if you're willing to do the work, then you can do it. And so, so that was a really wonderful mentor to have, right? As, yeah. Again, another case of community encouraging you to develop the ways in which you can thrive. And when he saw this happen to me, he, he knew the circumstances under which I'd found myself in the situation. He encouraged me to, because, and I, because I transferred, I was, a, I was dependent on my financial aid right. and scholarship, which required that I be a full-time student, which is very difficult to do when you can't read. Right, right. So, so his recommendation was that I take a studio art class and a studio piano course, which was uh, six credit, no, five credits and six credits. And, and then I took a beginning Italian course hmm. so that I could learn how to read the alphabet again. Oh. Yes, that's how I got into Italian. Oh, wow. <laughs> Because when I looked around, see, uh, growing up, I spoke English, Luo, and Kiswahili. Those are my three mother tongues, if you will, mm. right? In, in, in school, I had taken as a foreign language when I was in Kenya, French. Mm. Those are the three languages that I knew. And then as an undergrad, I'd started learning Latin. I started studying Latin. Okay, yeah. When this happened, I was a sophomore going into, I was like a sort of a, I was a double sophomore, right? Because I'd switched majors. That meant that I was like kind of repeating my second year mm -hmm. of university. But when this happened, because I knew these other languages, like French, for example, I knew that I, that wouldn't help me since I couldn't read English. I couldn't read French. Right. I couldn't really read anything that was written. I could read music, which, which gave me really interesting insights. Because music is analog. Music notation is analog. Go up, down, play these things together right. in this rhythm. That's it, right. you know? But words are different. Words are symbolic, and they take some measure of decoding. Right, they're um, constructs. And you have to, exactly, and you have to learn the underlying, you know, sort of the principles. It, it's really weird to have learned this as an adult, to have learned how to read as an adult, because I became very aware of the mechanisms of like what goes into understanding what the written word is actually representing. Mm. So the reason I chose Italian is because I was already well into Latin and I didn't, and I, I needed to, I needed a language that I could actually use speaking, that I could listen to, that I could, uh, I could read contemporary uh, like newspapers, magazines, mm. stuff in, and Latin wasn't it. Mm -hmm. But I also knew that Italian, what you see is what you uh, here, right? Because as a music student, I was also studying uh, a lot of operas, right? Mostly Mozart and Verdi operas. So, so I I took the the beginning Italian class in order to learn how to read the Roman alphabet again or the Latin alphabet again. What a neat sort of occupational therapy. 
Yeah, very interesting. And mind you, remember, in the meantime, I was also taking a studio uh, piano course, mm. which meant that I was playing Beethoven like mm. seven days a week. And I was taking a studio art course, which meant that for, I think, five hours twice a week, I was in a studio drawing, right? right. Like just drawing pictures. Fast forward, apparently I was like a dry sponge mm. in the Italian course. Mm -hmm. It just, everything just, you know, absorbed. And the department happened to have a program, a pilot program in Perugia, where there's a university for foreigners. And they wanted to send some students there to test out the pilot program. I was tapped for it Ooh. because of the, the progress that I was making. Apparently they'd never seen anybody learn Italian that <laughs> and I thought to myself well I guess maybe you need to start from zero like a clean slate yeah. <laughs> learn yeah and whatever they sent me to Italy we were there with the advisor the the department head at the time he came with us since the, he was sort of seen to he wanted to see if this education about program was viable mm. and I was in that mode like the momentum was so high and I never thought that I would ever go back to Italy. This was like a, one of those like once in a blue moon, once yeah. in a lifetime thing. Yeah. I figured I'd make the most of it. So I rather than just continue on like to the intermediate and then the advanced grammar courses, I asked if I could take history and culture courses as well ah. and literature courses. And so they found a suitable one, which was a survey of Italian literature from the beginnings to, you know, contemporary. And the, the, it didn't include Dante, by the way, but it did start with Francis of Assisi's Cantico delle Creature, which is the Canticle of the Sun. It's called, a, I think in English, it's called the Canticle of Brother, Sun and Sister Moon. A really beautiful piece, which I think everyone should, should read mm. because it's one where this 12th century ascetic monk talks about the world as like everything in creation is essentially it's very existence is like a song of praise mm. to the divine right yep. like the very existence of the sun or the moon is in and of itself a song of praise yeah i've heard that concept yeah yeah and he talks about the you know the all of these elements in creation as brother sun sister moon and sister water and sister death and you know sister earth and and it, it it resonated so deeply with me part of it because i couldn't believe that a, a 12th century monk had written this right <laughs> um uh and, and a catholic one at that right mm -hmm. because it sounded something that a hippie would write <laughs> at, but 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 this is how i'd grown up i'd grown up with a very 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 robust sense of like connection to the natural world mm. um, and our intrinsic belonging to it so this meant a great deal to me and I got completely immersed in reading everything about Francesco and I found a volume called the Ifioretti di San Francesco which is the little flowers of Saint Francis oh okay yeah 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 yeah, a collection of stories that I've been I've written that, about yeah. him right the anecdotes about his life that have been written during his lifetime and I think it was published after he passed away, but it was it was composed by his his uh, followers, right? And they told all these stories that are now part of you know, the folklore of you know the life of Saint Francis. The you know the story about you know preaching to the birds, or mm. the one about um, 
uh, uh, befriending the wolf of, of Gubbio um, and things like that. And in the margins, there was always a summary of each anecdote in each episode, like a three line summary that mm. was perfect. Like in three lines, whoever was had created the summary, and this is an old book, it was from 1891, this volume mm. that I got at a, at a flea market. I remember thinking, wow, the editor of this book is really good because they've, they've managed to do that thing where they give you the, the summary or sort of a, a it's almost like a, a teaser, right? Mm. Of the, of the episode, but in no more than three lines for each one. And it encapsulates the whole story. I thought, wow, this is fantastic. But after a while, I started noticing that there was always a citation under it. And the citation was always like Paradiso XI, Paradiso XI and some verse Oh my God. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And apparently what they'd done is they'd gone into the 11th canto of Paradiso and drawn from it Dante's telling of the story of St. Francis. And each episode, Dante manages to capture in a tercet. Wow. And that was spread throughout the volume. Uh, Paradiso Undici is, uh, Paradiso Undici, sorry, Paradiso 11, <laughs> excuse me. I'm just, <laughs> I get into these like. <laughs> That's okay. I don't really understand Italian, so you it's can okay. just run with it. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Uh, Paradiso 11 is is the one that tells the story of the life of St. Francis and it and it's 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 I think it's about half the half the canto is just the life of St. Francis right and it's 139 verses long so about about 70 of those verses about 75 of those verses say 70 maybe are tercets that are just giving you episodes of the life of St. Francis and he covers the gamut. Like, it's amazing. But I did not know Undici or Paradiso 11 was. Hmm. I didn't know that, I didn't know who this Dante Alighieri that was, that was, that was mentioned in the, in the back, in the index at the back was. Yeah, yeah. I just thought that this was like maybe, you know, a, a, a singular poem that you could find in an anthology, like maybe a sonnet or a ballad or something. Yeah. So I went to find a, an anthology of Italian poetry that included Paradiso Undici because I wanted a collection of poetry that included the story of St. Francis. Uh-huh. That's how I stumbled into Dante. Wow. And, and the rest is history because the, the, <laughs> the bookstore is so funny. One of those cases of being lost in translation, right? I go in and I ask the, I ask the, the bookseller, if she could recommend some anthology that included Paradiso Undici. Yeah. And she being Italian and they having imbibed Dante with mother's milk, right? Right. Did not have a concept that I had no idea about Dante Alighieri. <laughs> so when I asked for Paradiso Undici, she was like, oh, Dante. So she starts directing me to where I can find Dante. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I don't want Dante. I'm just, I just want a collection that includes Paradiso Undici. She's not understanding that I don't understand, that she doesn't understand. I mean, like we just, <laughs> we have, we're not understanding each other, but, but, but we don't know that we're not understanding each other. Right. Yeah. So, so she's very careful to give me directions, like go around the end. And when you turn the corner, there's an, a section of the bookstore that's all dedicated to Dante. 
and you can take <laughs> any of the any of the additions that you find there right yeah so find me frustrated i was like okay well fine might as well maybe i'll find something in there i go in around the corner i turn to to the right i enter into this smaller room that was floor to ceiling packed and the, this is what italian bookstores are like they're packed right yeah so floor to ceiling packed and every single volume in there has dante alighieri on on the spine <laughs> but it's either inferno paradiso or purgatorio or okay. commedia right okay yeah comedian variations and then there are a few other volumes of other things like vita nova and and you know um uh, other titles but the like the, the 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 minor works as it were but the vast majority were these inferno purgatorio paradiso or bestsellers <laughs> and I, but honestly okay this is so funny janet this is where like talk about loss in translation <laughs> i thought that dante alighieri was a publishing house oh and i thought that's what accounted for it that being on all the spine yeah yeah i mean it, it, it wasn't even a conscious thought like it's no. just like because i had no conception that this human being existed right and even though i'd seen it, the name in the index it hadn't occurred to me remember when i went to the bookstore i didn't ask for dante yeah i just asked for paradiso undici yeah Yeah, in an anthology. I, I thought then I would, yeah. and then I would find out like who the poet might be, right? <laughs> But no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, after several hours, I don't know how many, it kind of began to dawn on me that, <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Paradiso Undici is like just, it's like the 11th canto of Paradise, which is like the 78th canto of a 100 canto collection mm. that is together called the Divine Comedy. And in my head, again, this is, I love this naive reading business. In my head, I was still thinking, oh, this is just amazing. I was so thrilled. Why? Because I thought, oh, all I got was a little snippets from Paradiso Undici. You mean there are a hundred of these cantos? I get to read about Francesca from 100 cantos. <laughs> And I thought, I was like, oh my God. That, and I knew that Dante had been born a generation after Francesco died. He was born in 1265 and Francesco died in the early 1200s, right? Okay. And so I remember thinking that, that oh, he still had, like, he still had a lot of that. Like, it was still sort of current contemporary history for him. Right. Plus, knowing that within Francesco's life, the, the Ifioretti had been out and I'd seen what Dante had done with the tales of the Fioretti summarizing each anecdote in three verses, I really honestly thought that the Commedia was about St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah. And so I bought a complete edition that included all three, Inferno Purgatorio Paradiso. Ah. And I started reading it right away. Like as soon as I was out the bookstore, I started reading it. The way it begins, and I so remember this, I'm walking along Corso Vanucci, And these are the words that are coming to me from the page. Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la diritta vi era smarita. Ay, quanto a dir. And as I'm reading, like I can, the, the music of the, of the poetry is washing over me. Mm. And as, because I'm reading as I'm walking, the natural rhythm 
is also just flowing. It turns out the commedia is a journey, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he can't actually begin the journey. He starts to like he he takes a few false steps and he's like sort of like prevented from from making any progress until a guide shows up and leads him the rest of the way and tells him, "A te conviene tener otro viaggio." Like you need to take a different itinerary than mm-hmm. the one you imagine you take, and I'm going to mm-hmm. guide you through that itinerary. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm reading all of this, and mind you. I have no conception of who Virgil is. I have like all of these, all of these metaphors, all of these allegories that are coming out of the page. I'm not, I, I don't find myself bogged down. I'm not feeling like, oh, I don't know right. what, what that is or who that is because I'm just following them. Right. In their, in their journey, just following along. And so I start reading my my time in Perugia, the program comes to an end. I'm in Italy for a little while longer over the summer. I come back to California. I'm still reading the Commedia. By now, I've bought an additional edition, uh, still in Italian, but this time that is sort of like a narrative commentary uh-huh. of the of the text, not the sort of the not the formal like you know line by line commentary that you see on some of those really really punctilious editions this is just sort of like a narrative uh, someone had had produced a narrative version of the commedia in contemporary italian right mm. so for 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 more ready access to high school students yeah and so i'm reading both of them side by side and again i'm not getting bogged down by who's who and whether it be historical characters or right. or or mythological characters or even philosophical ideas, the the individuals that I do recognize are biblical characters. Ah, right? yeah, yeah. Those ones I recognize, and some of the more some of the more popular mythological characters from Greek and 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 uh, and Roman mythology. But otherwise, all contemporary Italians, especially contemporaries of Dante's or individuals who are part of Italian history, yeah mean absolutely nothing to me but what i'm focusing on is what story they're telling about their lives right so it doesn't matter to me what their cultural historical significance is what matters to me is the role that they're playing in the pilgrim's journey Mm. what story are they telling him what is he learning from them what kind of how are they represented like how do they come out of the page are they are they humble are they eloquent are they grotesque? Are they are they angry? Like all of that is just coming, just flowing out of the page. By the end of that year, it took me a year to finish uh, the story, to finish the journey. But by that time, fall trimester had begun. Mm. Same professor who had been with us in Perugia was now offering a course on Dante. He was aware of my passion for it because we would take field trips when we were in Italy. Yeah. And I always had my commedia with me. Like I was always reading it. <laughs> and sometimes I'd be like, oh, wait, he says here that, oh, he does this. Or, you know, and I was so fascinated by the way he presented the world, like yeah. the natural world, right? One of my favorite, oh, I remember the, inc- the first time I had like a, of course I was, I was entranced, right? But the very, very first time I had a real like, mind-altering experience was very early on. I think I was rereading um, the first canto because after I'd, I'd gotten sort of into the groove of it, I went back to, to the beginning again 
and I, I think I'd finished maybe I'd, I'd, I'd gone to the third canto, which is where they see the, the, the gates of hell and it ends with, you know, abandon all hope you enter. Hmm. So I'd got into that groove, but I felt this need to like sort of like reorient myself. So I'd started reading again. Mm-hmm. And as in that second rereading, I came across this passage um, early in the journey when he's first uh, like he so he's come out of the, the 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 dark wood and he's he has no idea how he ended up there um, and he's just coming to, but he sees the sun, the rays of the sun. Mm. And he decides to go toward it, to climb the hill behind which the sun is rising. And the sun hasn't quite risen. So it's just the rays, right, that are shooting out from behind the hill. It's amazing because that becomes clear in the passage I'm going to share with you in just a minute. Mm. So he goes in that direction. But as he's beginning to climb, suddenly there's like a lynx, lonza, right? This animal, this wild sort of feline that's blocking his path. And he's shocked. He's like, oh my God, oh no, no, no. <laughs> so he thinks, oh, I better not. But but as he's losing faith, he, this is what he says. I'm gonna, um, I think I found it here in English. Ah, here we go. This is happening in the 37th verse, right? Into the journey. Mm-hmm. It was the hour of the morning when the sun mounts with those stars that shone with it when God's own love first set in motion those fair things. So that despite that beast with gaudy fur, I still could hope for good, encouraged by the hour of the day and the sweet season, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Mm. So here he is scared and afraid that this thing might get him. He can't quite go up the hill. But then he says, it was dawn and the sun was just then rising in the company of all, in the company of all the stars that had been with it when when the divine power first set everything in motion. Mm. And I remember this really just, it grabbed me because I realized, whoa, did he just connect that vision of dawn, that experience of dawn to the very first dawn that ever was? There was nobody there to witness it, but it did happen. And every other dawn after that, up to that point. And then this allowed me to future project and to, every other dawn that ever would be hmm. and something my mind was flooded with every time i experienced the dawn i was like oh you mean all those times i was seeing the very dawn like the same dawn that had taken place with all of its different permutations like in the clouds or in the shade of the sky what have you that had the same dance that had taken place the very very first time the divine mover had set all those things in motion oh that's lovely and it was like amazing amazing yeah. and that was that that was the beginning of the love affair like I still get goosebumps <laughs> when I think about it because it only got better from there and it, the momentum just intensified and intensified and intensified and I was always like oh my god like, oh my god oh my god <laughs> by the time I got to Purgatorio I was thinking okay so Inferno's over that was really intense like, like super intense what now Purgatorio starts and again I'm just all slack-jawed in wonder going I had no idea it was possible to still have something fresh and new after that amazing amazingly intense feast that Mm. was Inferno and then Purgatorio this is why I always love 
talking and hearing from people who really mm-hmm. love, like whether it's their job job or their mm-hmm. creative piece or their mm-hmm. their work in the community, like that mm-hmm. delight and that yes. sort of going back to it and still finding delight in it. Yes. I yes. just, I, that's like, that's like sunshine on my sunflower to me. <laughs> I that's love brilliant. it. I that's just brilliant. love it. Um, so Let me I, ask you something. Have yeah. you ever had that experience where you, like, it can be maybe ice cream or a dish that you really enjoy or something. And as you consume it, you get to the point where, like, you don't want to finish it because mm. it's just so good and you want to, like, prolong the pleasure. I actually have a, a version that you were kind of talking about earlier, uh-huh. which is, for example, in my last day in a place that I really loved, mm-hmm. I'll be like, oh, this is the last time I'll take my coat off of this hook. Oh, this is the last, and I sit there the whole day long, and and then and then of course another part of me goes, shut up and enjoy it for you know, but but I sit there kind of like, oh, I've got to memorialize this moment, I, you know, I don't want to get on the plane, I I want there to be like another three years stretched out in front of me here. Here's here's what's really funny about reading the commedia. Now this poem is fourteen thousand two hundred thirty three lines long, so there's plenty, <laughs> there's plenty to go around. I'd like to thank Adoyo for talking with me today. Tune in next week for part three of our conversation. Links to Adoyo's books, as well as past episodes, can be found at our website, working9tothrive.com, and that's with the number nine, and also on our Facebook page.